0: Hi, this is Steve Robinson here for another in a series of podcasts from Sadie Records. And we're very delighted to welcome two members of the Dover Quartet. Their new album, it's their debut album, Tribute Dover Quartet Plays Mozart. And contained on this album are three pieces, the quartet in B-flat, Kershaw 589, quartet in F major, Kershaw 590, and the string quintet in C minor, Kershaw 516B. Joining the quartet for the quintet is none other than Michael Tree of the Guarneri Quartet. And I wanted to welcome two members of the Dover Quartet to the studio and the podcast, Joel Link, violin, and Milena Pajaro-Vandestart-Viola. The other members of the quartet are Brian Lee, violin, and Camden Shaw, cello. If you don't mind, I'm going to begin by just quoting from the little forward that Arnold Steinhardt wrote. I won't read the whole thing, but just the first couple of sentences because I think it's a good way to start. Arnold Steinhardt, famously from the Guarneri Quartet, writes, Several years ago, four gifted students who had just formed the Dover Quartet while at the Curtis Institute of Music played for me. At the time, I was sufficiently impressed by their musicianship and their ensemble to think to myself, if they work hard and long, if their musical ideas continue to mesh, and if the group chemistry remains healthy and collegial a lot of ifs there for any young quartet, the Dovers could become one of the most brilliant and musically significant string quartets in chamber music. Well, I'm delighted to report that it has come to pass, and this debut CD will give the listener a confirmation of the Dover Quartet's remarkable musical gifts and the impressive career they have already embarked upon. It's quite a statement. So tell us a bit about how the quartet was formed, obviously at Curtis. You met at Curtis, I presume? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, did. Brian and I, the two violinists, we came to Curtis in 2005. We'd actually met a couple of years before at a summer festival when we were 13 years old. All left. four of you met for thir- when no, you? Know. Just no, just uh, two just two Brian and I, I, I actually. Uh-huh. Yeah, the two of us. So we met in 2002, and then the two of us wound up being at Curtis and applying the same year and getting in the same year. And then the next year, actually, Milan and Camden came to Curtis. What's kind of unique about Curtis is they give you a lot of flexibility with being able to form cheer music groups that you want to form, and of course you always have to be in a, in at least one, and I think sometimes maybe even two. I, I guess throughout your time at Curtis, you get to know people that are more serious and less serious about cheer music, and if you're serious about pursuing it, you can really get to work with people who are as in love with it as you are.
2: I think at one point Camden was in about six or seven groups one semester, but to elaborate on how we got together, Camden and I started playing in a quartet together from our very first year at Curtis, very much the same way that Joel and Brian did, and instantly we loved playing with one another, and from that moment on, our very first month of school, we started playing with tons of different pairs of violinists, and I had personally gone to school with the idea of being in a quartet, that was always my dream, Mm -hmm. and so I was already on the prowl, so to speak, (laughs) for Quartet Soulmates, which I always say I I then settled for these three. Yeah, she settled (laughs) for us, which is great. Camden and I, one day, I guess it was our third year and your fourth year, you and Brian, we lucked out and managed to get these two violins we'd been admiring from afar to start playing with us. And the first piece we ever worked on together was Alban Berg, Opus 3, which I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first quartet the Guarneri's played together at Marlborough, which is such a huge coincidence, but... Bizarre. We kind of <laughs> fell in love. Our topless quartet and our bottomless quartet, the two pairs converged.
1: meshed, and we made <laughs> one full person.
0: I mean, Len, I want to ask you, you said that you felt this instant rapport when you started playing with uh, Camden Shaw, the cellist, long before the quartet was formed. Describe that. I mean, what sort of electricity or what sort yeah. of feeling did you have? How did you know it was different than playing with other people?
2: I think for me... And Camden might have something similar or different to say, but for me, it was the fact that we didn't always agree on everything, yet we were always very excited by the other person's ideas. This is what we love about playing in quartet already in general, is the fact that you get to learn so much from your peers. And we felt constantly challenged and inspired by one another's ideas and music making. We did have similar fundamental concepts of interpretation and sound production, things like that. But the fun part of it was the amount of discussion that went into it and the amount of experimentation and that we always felt as though the possibilities were endless. And that was very exciting.
0: Well, it's fascinating to hear you say that you felt an instant rapport because you disagreed with each other. but yep. so <laughs> <laughs> not really disagreements, just different, yeah, just, different ways of, yeah. of looking at things and, and obviously some sort of ability to love talking about them.
2: Yeah, it makes the process more fun, because yeah. if we were to agree on every single thing, then you almost don't even have a, a process to begin with. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, <So>. healthy respect.
3: <laughs> I'm curious to know where the name Dover Quartet comes from.
0: That's Jim Ginsburg, the president of Sadie Records.
2: Actually, a similar place as our quartet. We named ourselves Dover because we wanted our name to be personal, much like this debut album. We wanted it to hearken to our birthplace as a group, which was the Curtis Institute of Music. Samuel Barber, a composer who studied at Curtis, wrote a gorgeous piece for a voice and string quartet called Dover Beach. And that piece was premiered at Curtis by Barber himself and the Curtis Quartet. So much like that piece was born at Curtis, so were we.
0: I read an introduction by Arnold Steinhardt, and uh, he's obviously and famously with the Guarneri String Quartet. This album is a tribute to the Guarneri Quartet. very interesting one because it mirrors their debut album from 1966, the same repertoire. Uh, so tell us about your relationship with the Guarneri Quartet, Joel.
1: Sure. The Guarneri Quartet, I think uh, we've always just admired them for so long and I think all of us growing up you know even in completely different parts of the country it was definitely a quartet that we've always been drawn to sonically I think from a very young age. I know for me personally just getting to work with them at school was something that I thought would never happen just because I'd idolized them so much and I know that it's the case for all of us and then to even take it one step further to then be able to record something with Michael Tree was just like the icing on the cake. It was a tremendous honor for all of us. I think our rapport with them has really grown throughout the years. And of course, we're very... Friendly with them and such, and I would never say that we're friends with them in a way because I, I'll always keep them up on this pedestal, even if Michael insists that I call him Michael and not Mr. Tree, which is still very difficult to do. Um, they make
2: us feel as much as as much as we can that yes. we're their friends, but they will always be our idols.
1: Yeah, they want us <laughs> to be their friends, but we're. Now I want to we, rewind. It's that. hard for us. Yeah.
0: I want to rewind a little bit. So you must have been quite young when you first heard the quartet. Yeah. Still it was now? on a
1: CD, and uh, and I remember at one point I was I. Grew up in atlanta and my mom was like i got tickets to see the guarneri quartet and i was so excited had Uh, you heard them yet on the i had heard them on a cd but of course there's nothing that really replaces being there live and i just remember being so blown away and that was definitely a very big moment for me in my development that was when i started wanting to play a lot of chamber music because i hadn't really done it as a kid and i wasn't that old when this happened and going to the concert came around and for me, it was unbelievable how much it really changed my life from that point, and I wish that I had been a more mature, more knowing musician at that point to have even gained more from this experience. But at that point in time, it was as life-changing as it could have been. About um, how old were you? I think I must have been like 10 or 11, and I specifically remember after the concert going to talk to Mr. Steinhardt because I was just you know so blown away by this concert, and I was like, oh, I'm a violinist. And of course, as a renowned violinist like Arnold Steinhardt, you would see tons of people that come up to you I'm sure after your concerts and say oh I play violin and you probably just think there's some you know little kid and he was so kind to me and he said oh well, what do you want to do and I was like well I want to play music for my life and he was like oh well there's some really wonderful schools you should look at you talked to me about Curtis a little bit and he was just so nice and then yeah and then this whole relationship it's awesome when you think about it really cool
0: and there are lots of quartets out there uh you know more than you can count. What about the Granary Quartet? What what about their sound resonated with you?
2: Well, for me, and I'm pretty sure I speak for everyone in the group when I say this, it's their ability to have four completely unique, distinct, expressive voices, which you can always pick them out, yet they come together to form something even greater than that. And that was what really drew me to wanting to be in a quartet in the first place, was to have the opportunity for your unique voice, and actually Camden talks about this a lot too, the fact that being in a quartet, we really have an opportunity to strive for musical idealism, because they each get to play to the utmost of their expressivity, while also coming together in a very selfless way.
0: Yeah. And now as we said, this album, is it an exact mirror of their one from 1966?
3: It's the same repertoire plus the quintet with Michael Trey, who is of course the violist of the Guarneri
2: Quartet.
0: Whose idea was it to mirror this? It's such a wonderful thing to have your debut album mirror your idols of, from 50 years I ago. It,
2: I think it was a natural group progression towards coming up with this project idea because we really wanted our first album, our debut, to be something that was extremely meaningful to us, not only musically but also as people and as students of music life students of music so it it, we really wanted something to bring us to the birth of our quartet and the ordinary quartet as our mentors and especially also getting to play with michael tree who was one of my private teachers was a really special thing
0: and one last question before we jump into a discussion of the first piece you've studied with lots of people both privately and in, in coaching situations with you mentioned pamela frank and joseph silverstein but how uh, did uh, working with the Guarneri shape your sound and your, your approach to music? In it's, 10 it's, words or less. You know.
1: <laughs> Man, I think it's hard. It comes in so many different phases. I think it's all the recordings that you listen to and how that just shapes your ear from the time you're young. And it just puts an idealistic sound in your head. And then when you work with them, Milena was tapping on it earlier when she mentioned about expressivity. And I think for them, it was all about being as expressive as possible and not feeling like you're ever giving up something expressive to be together or something like that, that you're always putting your individual self in a healthy way first for the sake of the group, in a sense. So making sure that you can be as expressive as you want, even if we have to do something that doesn't feel really that great. But it just makes the group product so much stronger. And I think for them, they're always demanding more.
0: You said that it's important to be able to express yourself and your individuality as a
1: performer. But then you have to fold that, though, into a quartet. To me, there's a contradiction there. I know exactly what you're saying, and if you think about it, it totally is. But what it is is about finding the point where the individual and the ensemble meet and trying to get the most out of both and never sacrificing the amount of individuality you can have for the sake of the group. If doing something individual is going to make the general phrase seem not that good then it's not a good thing but if there's something that's just like the most special moment and you feel like you need to really bring this thing out then everyone needs to find a way to be able to make their parts fit into something that's there you know from the composer so you have to find a way as a group to be able to make that work in a way that makes sense
0: doesn't sound like something you suddenly do you have to work on it Mm -hmm.
1: Actually,
2: that reminds me (laughs) of the second cellist, the cellist of the Guarneri Quartet, who ended up replacing David Sawyer, Peter Wiley. We had a coaching with him at Curtis once. He said something I would never forget and that I've since then brought to groups that I've been coaching myself, and that was your rehearsal is your opportunity not to play together. That's like the best opportunity for that. Be who you want to be, play the way you want to play, and if you're not together... There's a point of discussion, and then you can figure out why you're not interpreting it the same way and how everyone's feeling about that part. And coming up with a unanimous emotion for something or unanimous interpretation or phrasing, it starts from not being together. And then once you get that discussion, you get to the concert and you have something unanimous and something effective and something compelling.
0: The first composition on this new CD recording featuring the Dover Quartet, is their debut album, is the quartet in B-flat major K, 589 by Mozart. And all three of the pieces you've selected are late Mozart.
1: Tell us about this first piece. The Prussian Quartet's a group of three quartets, the last ones that he wrote. So it's the two that we recorded as a quartet and then also a Kerschel 575 in D major. They were written for Friedrich Wilhelm II, the Prussian king, and apparently a amateur cellist. And when he commissioned these, I think Mozart's idea was to be able to write something that showcased the cello in a more virtuosic way than he had usually done, which kind of goes into a little bit of how amazing it was that the Guarneri Quartet decided to put this as their first album. It was a very strong choice and a lot of virtuosity coming from David Sawyer.
2: Seems a little fitting for their group in particular because David was the senior member of the group, and in a lot of instances, he ended up putting his foot down (laughs) about certain things. So it seems, uh, you know, like repertoire choices.
1: Yeah, he'd also been in a quartet previously so yeah. he probably had a lot more experience playing these pieces by that point in their career you know it's with the Monnezes
2: It seems pretty endearing that they decided to start with those quartets because it almost makes them seem like a family where he was a more fatherly a figure member. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but in any case all three of those quartets are very virtuosic for the cello this particular one I think of the two it's the more wistful and it, there's a tremendous amount of heart In the second movement it's It's more introverted than the other one. Actually the
2: whole disc, all three pieces couldn't be more Mm -hmm. different from one another, which is great.
0: In the liner notes, you refer to the cello parts in the Prussian quartets as quote unidiomatic for the instrument.
1: How does this make the piece more challenging to play? Along with the fact that they're virtuosic, it's just not idiomatic writing, I think, at all for the cello. So it's something that all cellists are kind of known to struggle with and all quartet cellists sit and complain about the same things, which is always fun. And it makes you feel like you have a place to be able to vent, I guess, <laughs> with the difficulty and the frustration. The first movement is pretty classical in nature. The second theme is particularly treacherous, I think, for phrasing and both for the violin and for the cello, but clearly for the cello. Viola
2: has it later, yeah.
1: And of course, it's (laughs) always the most difficult when the viola has it. But yeah, quite standard. And I think the second movement is a real gem in this one. It begins with a sotto voce marking, and it begins with a cello solo, which is again fitting for these particular quartets. And then the theme is responded again with the first violin performing it, and then it's actually elongated.
2: The cello solo in the first movement, the the very first one, it's one of the best examples of the writing not being idiomatic. And actually, it makes me wonder, because so often now composers write for the cello in a way that the cellists will run out of fingers, literally, because they can't use as many in a scale as we can because the notes are farther apart. So very often cellists end up almost being forced to use harmonics, and it's become a very cellistic sound to hear someone kind of soar up to a harmonic, and pretty much every time almost that I've heard that solo played, someone uses a harmonic, and it can add a very graceful quality to the tune.
0: Well, let's hear an excerpt from this quartet in B-flat major from the first movement, Mark Allegro, from this debut album by the Dover Quartet. That was an excerpt from the first movement of the quartet in B-flat major, K-589, the movement marked Allegro, performed by the Dover Quartet.
1: The third movement of that piece is also really special. It's one of my favorite minuets and trios. They're all so great, but it's I love the trio
2: from the third movement of the B-flat. It's just such an
1: elegant movement in all ways. I think for a minuet movement, it's one of the more fiendishly difficult. Mm-hmm. It's kind of all over the it's place. It's very
2: delicate. It's extremely playful, yet also elegant, like you were saying. The trio part of it with all the... You have that da da dum ba in the beginning with the first violin. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the counter melody. And then
2: the yeah. counter melody with all the slurs and turns. It's one of the most exuberantly joyful pieces of
1: music. Yeah, and it's quite dramatic for a trio. They're more like another aspect of a minuet but there's actually a lot of drama and a lot of an entire bar of grand pause at one point that leaves you your stomach kind of up a little bit in a sense
2: it's true a lot of the time the trio is the lighter more tiny morsel of the movement in comparison with the first half but not in this case
1: yeah it's meaty well let's hear that trio
0: from this third movement of the quartet That was the trio section from the third movement of the quartet and B-flat major, for K-589, performed by the Dover Quartet. And the members of the Dover Quartet are Joel Link Violin, Brian Lee Violin, Milena pajaro Stadt, Viola, and Camden Shaw Cello. And two members of the quartet are with us, Joel Link and... Milena Pajaro-Vandestadt, good to have you here. Wonderful performances, and anybody hearing this new CD record, it's your debut recording, your tribute to the Guarneri Quartet, your mentors. If you're a little bit teased by that brief excerpt, go out and buy the album. And you can buy it by going to cdrecords.org or your favorite CD store. Are there any CD stores left? But uh, CDRecords.org is probably the best place, don't you think, Jim?
3: Or other online shops uh, like amazon.com or archivemusic.com, or if you prefer downloads, there's iTunes, also available on all the streaming sites. Come to our concerts. Yeah, we
0: (laughs) sell them at the concerts, too. (laughs) Uh, The album is numbered 167 in the main CD catalog. We're going to talk a bit now about the second Composition on this album, which has three compositions is the quartet in F major K 590 which follows 589 He probably wrote these in three weeks or something Well, he wrote his last three symphonies in three weeks, so why not dash off two quartets in, in His spare time tell us about the quartet in F major. What's special about it for you?
2: In comparison to the first piece on this disc it's much more extroverted I would say much more celebratory through and through and extremely fun to play, although it could be pretty treacherous in places. The first movement actually brings up one of the most discussed in any chamber group or any setting interpretational issues with Mozart's music, which is when to do a subito dynamic and when to either crescendo into a forte or diminuendo into a piano and why something very fascinating about these first two bars is that the first bar is marked piano, the second bar is marked forte.
1: No connective yeah, dynamic. With, yeah, yeah, with
2: no other dynamic, no other marking. So very often it's played exactly that way, very quiet in the first bar and then a subito forte in the second bar. Although it isn't very widely known that in his works catalog, Mozart put a little hairpin up in that first bar, which explicitly states that you should crescendo to that forte. But then it didn't end up going into the final manuscript of the piece. So our interpretation of that was not to do a subito forte, but not to crescendo all the way to forte, to have the first bar be leading, but then have that next bar, the forte, be a burst of joy. And it's a discussion that I'm sure we will continue to have for the rest of our lives as a quartet.
0: (laughs) You were referring to Mozart's catalog in the last years of his life in Vienna, he kept a catalog of all of his works and he just wrote down the first few bars of mm-hmm. every piece and this was the opening bar and there it was. So mm-hmm. I think that proves it. you wanted a little crescendo there.
2: Yeah, it seems like it. And maybe he wrote it without thinking and it was just something that might have been understood back in the day that maybe people didn't need always to have those little hairpins or crescendo reminders and they did them.
1: Especially with Mozart being Mozart and how we understand him to have been. He wasn't someone who necessarily struggled a tremendous amount with composition, so I doubt he was going back and forth like, oh, should there be one? Should there not?
0: We're going to hear the second movement from this piece in its entirety. This is just one of the great movements in his whole output. It's mm. just so beautiful and luscious. Anyone's
2: output.
0: <laughs> Dante, And as referenced in your program notes, Brian talks about it as his deathbed piece. <laughs> uh, Brian Lee, the second violinist, talk about this movement. What's so
1: special about it? What's special about it is that it's so simply deep. He never goes out of his way to be deep or give it too much meaning, but it's just oozing with meaning everywhere. I think it's so apt that it's Brian's deathbed piece because when it's bitter for a couple seconds, it always winds up being bittersweet. He doesn't keep you in a dark place for very long. He just succeeds in making it this really glorious and luscious movement.
2: It's simple. It's beautiful. It's... Mostly in a major key, yet it doesn't feel necessarily happy or carefree. It feels... I think Camden, in his liner notes, he mentioned that it has wisdom to it, which is so true. And it reminds me, actually, a lot of some of the slow movements in late Beethoven, which is fascinating. Like, it makes me think first of the slow movement of Opus 135, the last Beethoven quartet, which begins simply with just a scale whereas this one begins simply with just one chord repeated for a bar.
0: Or as Camden says in the notes, there is a sense of calm perspective where both the joy and pain of human experience are understood fully, without judgment, and with acceptance. Well, let's listen then to this Andante from the quartet and F major, Kerschel 590, performed on their debut album, a CD recording. This is performance by the Dover Quartet. That was the Andante, the second movement from the quartet in F major, Kerschel 590, performed by the Dover Quartet. The last movement of this piece is particularly interesting. You're not going to hear it on this podcast, but you will if you buy it. Joel, what about this last movement it turns you on so much?
1: The last movement of this quartet is just incredibly virtuosic and incredibly light, and it's like a party but with a lot of playful banter, a lot of jabbing, and a lot of vitality and personality, and it's fiendishly difficult for all four and definitely not leaving out the cello in which when you're trying to do the same kind of difficulties a violinist is doing, it gets magnified as you go down the instruments because all the distances are bigger and you have fewer and fewer fingers to be able to use, and It's a bizarre but charming movement. It's really amazing. One of my favorite moments is when the exposition finishes and it goes into the development, how he just finishes it in C major, and then he goes up a half step to D flat major. It finishes, and you think it's going to recap or do something in a simple way, and it just starts with a loud forte chord from the rest of the group, aside from the first violin, and then it breaks out into... Another
2: very beethoven yeah, type of thing. <laughs> it
1: is. He's extremely forward-looking. And clearly, at this point in his career, he was really branching out with these.
0: Well, that's Joel Link, first violinist of the Dover Court, talking about the last movement of this Kershaw 590 Quartet in the major, which you're not going to hear in this podcast. There's only one way to hear it and to hear this marvelous performance, and that's by buying the album. And this is the debut album of the Dover Quartet, and you can buy it by going to cdrecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Or on any of your favorite websites, or if you happen to have a record store in your neighborhood, you can go buy it there, too, if there are any left. Well, there's one more piece. There are three pieces on this album, and this next piece is actually the quintet in C minor. And we were talking earlier in this podcast about the influence of the Guinary Quartet, so there's a need here for a fifth instrument. It's a viola, and the violist is none other than Michael Tree. That must have been quite a thrill. It was, it was so
2: exciting. I couldn't believe it when he responded right away and said that he'd be willing to record with us.
1: Yeah, it was even crazier that he said he was honored when... Uh, he has no yeah. idea. There are no words for, <laughs> you know, that we can use to aptly describe what he means to us. Milena, did you study with him?
2: I did, for five years at Curtis. One-on-one? On one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was one of my two primary teachers at the school.
0: Had the Dover Quartet formed while you were studying with him?
2: Yes, we had, and we played for him a few times while we were in school as well. So he coached us a good amount.
0: And here he is on this album. It must have been quite a thrill were you nervous throughout the session
2: we had had some rehearsals beforehand so the nerves wore off they Quickly. were there he's, uh, he's the he kind of person feel at home. <laughs> yeah, he home yeah you don't really need to feel nervous around him
0: now which part did you play
2: I played the first viola part and he played second talk about being honored <laughs> but that's also quite standard if you're in a preformed quartet if anyone joins the group they usually play the second part. Even if it's Michael Tree. He even played, Michael Tree. He played second
0: fiddle. He knew that when we asked.
1: <laughs> he knew that one even when we asked.
0: <laughs> so this is the string quintet in C minor. It has a double Kershaw number, K406-516B, which we won't get into. Talk a bit about this piece.
2: The only piece on the whole album in a minor key, the stormiest and darkest, and also the only one that wasn't originally written for strings. It started out as a wind serenade, which is very fascinating, not only because it gives us a glimpse into the sound world for which it was originally intended, but also the fact that Mozart decided to rewrite it for a string quintet showed how much he loved the piece and how proud he was of it, giving it even more opportunities to be played in different ways.
0: Are there other pieces that he did this with? Did he ever completely arrange a piece so radically as this?
1: I don't think so. Beethoven did it a couple times. Yeah, I was thinking of Beethoven.
2: I can't think of... Like, Beethoven did the piano... Yeah,
1: he did the piano trio and turned it into a viola quintet, which is... He also wrote a piano Piano version
0: of the violin concerto, right? Right. But this is the first time, I think, that I know that Mozart did this, which is just amazing to compare the two pieces. But this is the string quintet in C minor. It's in four movements, and we're going to hear the complete last movement, the allegro. Tell us about this piece, either one of you.
2: Actually, listening to the last movement is a great example of the piece in terms of hearing it and trying to imagine its original context because there are so many different textures. It's a theme in variations. Mm-hmm. There's so many different textures. You can picture which different wind instruments are playing different parts. There's a moment where the two violas play this clearly what is a horn call. You can hear it as horns even though it's being played on violas. And something else actually that I wanted to mention about the viola quintets is the way that, because Mozart was known for having the viola as his favorite instrument, I'm very proud to say, as a violist. (laughs) But the way that he uses the two violas together is so magical. We're not going to be hearing any of the first movement, but some of the most beautiful writing in the whole piece are these long passages of the two violas playing in thirds, Mm -hmm. these running eighth notes, these meandering lines, it's haunting.
1: That spot in the first movement actually is unbelievable. I think that's one of the most transformative uses of anything that I can think of with Mozart, the way he, in the exposition, he goes to E-flat major for the second theme, but then when it comes back later in the development, he goes to C minor. You're and expecting
2: it's, a major key, and it just...
1: And the way he transitions, so he uses the same material by going up chromatically in the octaves with the violins kind of playing it and hocketing back and forth, and then it winds up in, like, the most depressing, sad place that you can imagine. So it's I, this entire piece is just like so powerful and really it's revelatory.
2: With that in mind, actually going back to the last movement, it ends in the most joyful and exuberant way, which is a beautiful way also to end the disc, which is all really uplifting and wonderful, fun music. And then to have the depth of this last piece that still ends on a happy note
3: it's similar in uh, I think to the D minor piano concerto where you have all that minor 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 and then it breaks into the major mm-hmm. at the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it makes it so powerful in a way.
0: <laughs> well, let's listen then to the last movement of the string quintet in C minor of Mozart. It's Mark Allegro, and it's performed by the Dover Quartet on this, their debut recording on CD Records. The members of the quartet, Joel Link Violin, who's been with us today, Brian Lee Violin, Milena Bajaro Vandestat Viola and Camden Shaw Cello they're joined on this by one of their mentors, a member of the Guinary Quartet, and this album is in tribute to their mentors, the Guinary Quartet, Michael Tree. So let's listen to the string quintet in C minor, the last movement marked Allegro. was the allegro movement the last movement of the string quintet in c minor of mozart performed by the dover quartet and they were joined by one of their mentors michael tree viola and this is a brand new cd record the latest from cd and you can look at the whole catalog at cdrecords.org c e d i l l e cdrecords.org the debut album from this marvelous quartet that is in residence in chicago at northwestern university in evanston Congratulations on that residency by the way. You've just have completed your first year? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're about it, to
2: start the second. The school it? year has started but we haven't been there yet. You're tardy. We'll be there soon. Yeah,
0: we're yeah. <laughs> uh, in a late slip. Is this your first residency as a quartet? Uh,
2: yeah, it's our first yeah. completely in a professional capacity at a school.
1: As we teachers.
2: We were in residence at Curtis for a year and that residency entailed working with the students a good amount but we were also getting coached by our mentors in the Guarneri Quartet, for instance. This has been a really great experience so far. The first year was so much fun, and the students at the Beanan School of Music are fantastic and sweet and fun to work with, so it's been yeah, a great Yeah, we have really
0: loved our time there. And kind of a, a brand new building. Yes. yes.
2: Such a beautiful <laughs> building. Yeah. Have you yeah. performed in the Galvin? The Galvin, Galvin. yes. Yeah, in that it's, amazing hall. It's amazing, it's, amazing. it's gorgeous. And and, I mean, it's almost a little bit distracting to have that incredibly beautiful backdrop when you're playing with the lake and the view of the skyline of well Chicago, that's distracting right? for the
0: audience because we're, we're, <laughs> we're looking right out. on the it.
1: occasional jogger but uh, <laughs> right. they did such an amazing job with the hall with the sound panels that you can lower and drop you can get it jazz dry or you can have it classical wet if you really want so they they did beautifully
0: those of you living in the Chicago area listening to this podcast should make sure to get yourself over to Northwestern on October 18th for the first of three concerts that the Dover Quartet will be giving at Northwestern. Now, you've been in Chicago for how long? A couple of years? Or?
2: Well, about a year, a year although we don't officially each live in Chicago. Right. We're just living on the road. No, I know.
0: So I'm just curious to know. So how long we've been at Northwestern? Well, I, you're uh, observers of the Chicago music scene. What, what I about used the? to study
1: with uh, Roland and Almeida Vamos. Here in the Chicago area. I sat with them for three years in high school before attending Curtis, actually.
0: So, how would you characterize the music scene in Chicago as opposed to other cities you've been in?
1: I think what makes the music scene really unique here is that it's a bit separate from the Northeast and from the West and from a lot of other bigger centers, but it's so full of so many different classical institutions and not even classical, so much great jazz here, so much great any kind of music, and it doesn't feel like you need to really go outside of Chicago to find something of extreme quality between the symphony, the opera. They're both absolute world-class in each of their respective rights, and also for young people it's extremely nurturing and the level is extremely high. There are plenty of youth orchestras, and clearly the Music Institute of Chicago does something right, and they have people who are traveling the world, even in high school, performing, so it's amazing that it's so separate and that the level maintains such an unbelievably high level.
0: And what's next for the Dover Quartet? What big contest do you have coming up, maybe outside the Chicago area? What's in your future that you can foretell?
2: This year actually is a huge year for us because it's the first year that we're doing the complete Beethoven cycle, all the Beethoven quartets. And we're doing it three times. We're doing the entire cycle on a series in Buffalo, New York. We're doing the entire cycle at UConn in Storrs, Connecticut. And both of those cycles will be spread throughout the year, and we're doing all the quartets, including the Grosse Fugue, and six concerts. And then finally, kind of to sum up this year of our first huge Beethoven project, in Montreal, at the very beginning of the summer, in a span of about two weeks, we'll be performing the entire cycle as well. It's it's very exciting for us. Yeah, I'm nervous just thinking about it. (laughs) And (laughs) daunting.
0: what other repertoire, you've mentioned uh, obviously Mozart and Beethoven, what other kinds of music do you guys like to play and have you performed? Any contemporary music? Mm -hmm. All
2: kinds. We've been performing all season these two pieces that were written for us, one of them by David Ludwig, who happened to also be all of our music history teacher at Curtis, and now is a good friend of all of ours, you, you wrote a great piece composer. called yeah. Pale Blue Dot that we've been touring with this year. Audiences will love it, and it has to do with the um, Voyager 1 spacecraft leaving our solar system. Then the other piece that we're playing this year that was written for us is by Caroline Shaw, and she wrote it for the 75th anniversary of Dumbarton Oaks. They commissioned the piece for us, and that one is called Plan and Elevation, and it's extremely beautiful and meditative piece.
3: I think it's worth mentioning even as this album is coming out that the Dover Quartet's second CD album is already in the can and it's a product of having won the Banff competition in 2013. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. We've already laid down the tracks. And we were focusing on something completely different, obviously, than a tribute album. And we went with music that means a lot to us that was written around the time of World War II and from different perspectives, from different composers, from different places. The first piece, in really no particular order, but the first one I'll talk about is the Victor Ullmann String Quartet Number 3. He was a Czech-Austrian composer. He was interred at Theresienstadt, which was a propaganda concentration camp where they would allow the Red Cross to enter and show how, quote-unquote, while they were treating the people who were there. He wrote many things while he was there. He wrote an amazing opera that's starting to get a lot of performance time, The Emperor of Atlantis, which is similar to the Messian Quartet for the End of Time, where it has a very unique instrumentation because he was writing for what people could play at the camp where he was. This drink quartet survived. He gave the manuscripts to a friend when he was called to go to Auschwitz and he was killed two days later. We feel so fortunate that this piece exists and it's an amazing piece. such a privilege to be able to perform. The second piece is by a Polish-Jewish composer called Simon Locks, who actually survived the Holocaust while being at Auschwitz and kind of worked his way up through the musical ranks and wound up becoming the orchestral director at Auschwitz, which is in and of itself a very interesting thought. Kind of hard to believe that that existed during such a time. This string quartet number three is the first thing he wrote after he left Auschwitz.
2: It's all based yeah, on Polish folk songs, which he was banned from playing while he was interned at Auschwitz. So it's very emotional that the very first thing he wrote after the liberation was a string quartet, all based on those themes that he couldn't play for so long.
0: And yeah. those string quartets, number three, comprise the album? That's well, the that is oh, there's string another quartet. W- yeah. Oh, the almond is number three. Yeah. Oh,
2: the, so, yeah, almond string quartet number three is the first piece on the disc. He wrote it in 1943 in Theresienstadt. In 1944, actually, Shostakovich wrote his second quartet, and that is another piece that's on the album.
0: And then this piece um, by Simon Locks. And Lox. then, mm-hmm. then in
2: 1945, right after the liberation of the camps, Simon Locks wrote his string quartet number three.
0: So he was liberated from the camp. Right. Yes.
2: And he, the only reason it seems that he was able to survive Auschwitz was that they made him the conductor of the orchestra mm-hmm. there, and it's a very twisted thing. He actually wrote a book about his experiences, and how so many people, he would hear so many people say that music was the thing that kept people going and that kept people alive. And he said, for me, it was completely the opposite. It mm-hmm. became a perverted thing. It became a, a negative association. So.
1: Yeah, they were forced to play uplifting marches when people would go out and, you know, they when were, they were marching yeah, people mm-hmm. to the gas chamber. Right.
3: You can look forward to that on Sadie Records in October of 2017. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I want to wish the quartet
0: the best of luck this year and in coming years, and we've had the great pleasure of talking with two members of the Dover Quartet about their debut album on Sadie Records. The members of the quartet are Joel Link, who's been with us. Joel, thank you. Thank a you. Brian Lee Violin, a Milena Pajaro-Vondestaat. Thank you very much, Milena, and Camden Shaw cello. Those are the four members of the quartet. They were joined by Michael Tree for the string quintet in C minor of Mozart. You can purchase this and all Sadie Records at sadirecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, sadirecords.org. Thank you very much for listening.
3: Sadie Records is a non-profit recording label dedicated to producing classical recordings of the highest quality featuring outstanding musicians from Chicago. Sales of CDs and downloads cover less than 20% of our expenses, so we rely on your charitable contributions to fulfill our mission. Please visit cedirecords.org, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, records.org for more information on how you can support Chicago artists through CD.